0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Of all the holy places venerated by medieval Christians, there was nowhere quite as sacred as Jerusalem the supposed location of Jesus Christ's burial, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. If the Crusaders could get their hands on Jerusalem, it would be the jewel in the crown of Christendom. But first, they had to capture it. I'm Emily Briffitts, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we'll be traveling back in time to walk in the footsteps of the Crusaders as we trace the story of the First Crusade, taking in their triumphs and failures, witnessing the hardships they faced and seeing the landscapes they traversed through their eyes. We'll also be taking in the perspective of those who lived in the Holy Land and the regions the armed pilgrims passed through, speaking to a range of top historical experts to challenge some of the most popular perceptions about the Crusades. And to top this all off, we'll be delving into the Chronicles and revealing just why we continue to talk about the Crusades to this day. In this fifth and final episode, we'll be charting the last leg of the Crusade as the Crusaders set off from Antioch and make pace down the Levant towards their final goal, what they hoped would mark the conclusion of their arduous mission. As usual, we'll be delving into the biggest questions surrounding this crusade later in the episode. But before we do that, let's turn back the clock one last time and join our faithful historical travelling companion, Jonathan Phillips, Professor of Crusading History at Royal Holloway, University of London, to set the scene.
1: After the capture of Antioch in June 1098, the Crusaders rested for a while, Their exertions in taking the city meant that they needed to recover. In the course of that, Adhemar of Lepuy, their talismanic figure, the papal legate, died. This is a real blow to the crusader army. He was the one man who seemed to be able to control the secular leaders. He was a guiding figure. But after the capture of Antioch and a period of recovery, the crusaders need to decide what to do next. And the answer is, while it sounds obvious that they are going to be heading on to Jerusalem. That's not what some of the leaders want. Some of these men want to establish themselves. So you've got some of the leaders jockeying for position, trying to consolidate their status and their power. But if you're in the Crusader army, if you're one of the masses of the Crusader army, that is of absolutely no interest whatsoever. You have signed up for this thing. You have dedicated the last two or three years of your life. You're suffering, crossing Asia Minor, waiting outside Antioch, breaking into it. You want to get on to Jerusalem. And that has to be the priority. And in a sense, people power works because the crusade, the leadership, or Raymond of Saint-Gilles decides that he will put his hat in the ring with the people. He decides he will lead the crusader army south from Antioch to Jerusalem.
0: Waiting on this vital green light, the Crusaders faced the horrifying prospect of starvation.
1: Before the Crusaders moved southwards, they're struggling for food. They're outside a place called marat al numan and there one of the most notorious incidents in the First Crusade took place – an episode of cannibalism. This is a sign of absolute desperation. But after this, the Crusaders begin to gather their resources and then head south towards Jerusalem. They're taking advantage of the fragmented Muslim Near East. If you think about the, the road south, the cities they have to get past, actually, they move past places and towns and castles. They don't fight places, they don't besiege cities, largely because the Muslims are happy to see them go by. They understood what happened in Antioch, they understood what happened at Maratha It's much better just to wave these people through. the Crusaders aren't interested at this point in trying to establish kingdoms. They just want to get to Jerusalem. As recently as March 1098, the Holy City was held by the Seljuks. But then the Fatimid Egyptians conquer it in March 1098. You've got a city, when the Crusaders get hold of it in 1099, that's going to have three different owners in the space of two years. They headed south, and in the summer of 1099, came to Jerusalem. It must have been an extraordinary moment as the Crusaders laid eyes on the Holy City. Here, at long last, is the focus of their devotion. The place of Christ's tomb, all their blood, sweat, tears, death and suffering was focused on capturing this place in front of them. In a spiritual sense, it was obviously incredibly powerful to see the Holy City, for the leaders They looked at it, I suspect they sized it up as, what's the latest challenge we've got to deal with?
0: And looking up at the city walls, it must have dawned on the Crusaders that that challenge was significant.
1: Jerusalem's not as spectacular a site as Antioch, with no dominating citadel in the background behind it. It's within the Judean mountains, certainly it's about 40 miles from the Mediterranean coast. It's still a formidable obstacle, a walled city. There are valleys on three sides, with just the north as perhaps a more vulnerable side. It's very dry. We are in July 1099. The most obvious landmark the Crusaders see is the Dome of the Rock, built back in the 7th and 8th century, the place that marks where the prophet ascended to heaven on his night journey. A population of perhaps 20,000 people are inside the holy city facing the Crusaders. You've got Jews, and Muslims, and some Eastern Christians. By this time, the Crusaders are very experienced in siege warfare. But you've got to remember that this is mid-July. The heat, the intensity, in a sense, the spiritual intensity, as well as the military situation that they face, is really, really ratcheted up. There's also the political divisions within the Crusading army. Some of them are going to settle on the north of the city, where they're going to try and break in there. Raymond of Saint-Gilles is down to the south of the city. As the siege starts in early July, the defenders mass on the walls. Let's think back to Urban's decree for a moment, whoever for devotion alone, not for honour nor money. Well, honour and money are very much on the agenda now. They are things that the Crusaders want. Yes, devotion, but definitely honour, the first man over the battlements. It's a really strong motive to an awful lot of people. And they're also going to need money. Crusaders struggle for a while to get a foothold. Raymond of Saint-Gilles makes relatively little progress down to the south. Up in the north, Godfrey of Bouillon, who's really emerging as a powerful figure in the crusading force, gets a big siege tower built. He gets it over the initial lower wall and then gets it up to the main walls of Jerusalem. And there, eventually, a bridge is brought across to the walls of Jerusalem and some knights manage to scramble over and get a toehold on the walls of Jerusalem. And this is the moment that the Crusaders break the defence and they get in and manage to pile over into the city. Eventually, gates will be opened and the Christian armies pour in. And there, the pent-up anger, the frustrations and the zeal of two or three years on the road are unleashed. Jewish and Muslim defenders are slaughtered. Some of them are herded into the Temple Mount where they do a deal with Tancred to buy their freedom. Shockingly, after two days, that is betrayed when other Crusader forces break in and slaughter them. So, in July 1099, Jerusalem is back in Christian hands. Perhaps we might imagine the Crusaders were finished that they had achieved their goal. This is not at all the case. They are not secure remotely. The Fatimid Egyptians were heading up towards the Holy City, determined to eject these newcomers. So there's no time to relax. The First Crusaders have to gather themselves again and face a relief force. And there's a huge battle near Ascalon, which is down near Gaza on the coast now, where it really, the whole thing could have been unpicked immediately. All that effort, could have finished with defeat at the Battle of Ascalon. But the Crusaders by this time are an incredibly cohesive, determined, desperate force and they overcome the Egyptians. That really is the end of the First Crusade, that moment of consolidation. But what next? Many of the Crusaders chose to return home. They've achieved their aim, they're exhausted, they're tired, they're sick. They would have got some money from Jerusalem. They would certainly got some money from the Egyptian camp at Ascalon. And they also need to get home. They need to get on their ships before you get past October. The sailing season of the Mediterranean is very limited and you need to make sure that you don't miss your chance to get home. There must have been quite a, a powerful emotional scene. Some of the Crusaders, not many of them, are staying Many of their companions, their rivals, veterans of the expedition, head home, where they would have been met as heroes. Many of them would have come back with relics from the Holy Land acquired there, and many of them would have been incredibly ill and physically debilitated. As far as the Crusaders at stay, they've got to choose a leader. The rivalries in the course of the campaign have been obvious, but Raymond of Saint-Gilles is definitely one candidate, He seems a curious character. He, in many ways, has the credentials to be the first ruler of Jerusalem. But he just seems to alienate people at the wrong moment. He seems unpopular. He seems just to not be able to get it right. Godfrey of Bouillon has emerged in the course of the Crusade as a powerful and respected figure. And he takes the title of advocate of the Holy Sepulchre. He doesn't want to be called King in David's City. So a modest ecclesiastical title for Godfrey of Bouillon. But there he is, the first Western ruler of Jerusalem in the medieval period. The challenges that he then has to face, he's got a small number of knights, he's got only a few cities under his control. He is the alien invader in a minority. He really needs to work hard and be very inventive into how he's going to establish his authority. But in the course of the next few years, prioritising the coastal cities Godfrey and then other Crusaders arriving from the West managed to establish what we call the Crusader States.
0: We're here. We've made it. The Crusaders have finally reached their ultimate goal of Jerusalem and have seized it from its occupiers. It's the moment they've been waiting for. Now, it's time for us to consider the big historical forces that lay behind this pivotal moment. And the huge impact it left, not just on the medieval Levant, but throughout Europe and right across the centuries. By the time the Crusaders left Antioch, they were exhausted, starving and depleted. And according to Dr Steve Tibble, expert in Crusading warfare, there was now hope for a settlement between the Fatimids and Crusaders.
2: The Egyptian Fatimid Empire felt that they could come to an accommodation with the Crusaders. And there's evidence that they might have been prepared to let the Christians take Jerusalem and certain other parts of the Holy Land in return for settling down and effectively becoming a buffer state in between them and the Turks, because the Turks were very aggressive to everyone, whether you were Muslim or Christian. The Crusaders, I think, were probably just buying time. I think they were just stringing things along. But very significantly, as soon as the Crusaders have won after Antioch, their pace of march speeds up. It is also, you can see they're thinking, we've got a great opportunity here. We can go in, retake the Holy Land very quickly if we move fast enough. And the Egyptians, for whatever reason, seemed shocked by this. They hadn't been preparing properly. The garrison of Jerusalem hadn't been reinforced in the way it would have benefited from. The Egyptian field army hadn't moved into Palestine in any significant way. They were really caught on the hop. And the Crusaders exploited this by moving very rapidly down the coast, captured Jaffa, the port which allowed them links back to Europe, and then moved on from there inland into a siege of Jerusalem itself.
0: So how did the Crusaders go about taking the city?
2: Jerusalem is a very difficult city to besiege. It's in a very good position. There are large parts of the city walls that are almost impregnable and you can't deploy a besieging army around them. It's also big enough that the Crusader armies couldn't enforce a solid blockade. So even when they were there and besieging it, people were able to move in and out. The other main problem of Jerusalem was that it's inland. It is not in a a particularly vibrant area. You know, supply is very difficult around there. So supplying a besieging army at a time when the defenders can actually keep coming in and out of different gates is a bit of a worry, to say the least. The crusaders tried the traditional thing when they arrived. They tried a quick grab. So they did an assault and it was a big failure. So they lost a few men and I guess they thought, well, it's worth a try, but that failed. So they settled down for a proper siege. The defenders, the Egyptian defenders, were not impressive. It wasn't a huge garrison. They hadn't been reinforced properly, and the Egyptian government's probably to blame for that. They didn't act aggressively in any way. They made no sorties. There were attacks on the supply lines by some of Egyptians and some bandits, but the garrison itself were very passive, just stayed in the city. They may have been expecting a relief force, but for whatever reason, they were too slow, and that didn't happen. So, the Crusaders settled down for a longer siege, and the critical element in doing that, bizarrely, was wood. And it, it sounds very trivial, it sounds very prosaic, but supplies of wood were very problematic. And you find this time and again in sieges in the Middle East. They don't have good wood supplies. The Crusaders eventually had two sources of wood, both of which only happened by accident. First source was Some of the local Arabs who were Christians came to the Crusaders and told them where they could find some. So they'd actually been storing wood. So they took them to these secret wood supplies and they were able to start making some of those into engines, siege engines. The other accident that happened was that there was a a small Christian fleet in the port of Jaffa and the Egyptian navy turned up. The Egyptian navy was strong, regular, professional fleet, very, very powerful. So the, the small... Christian fleet was blockaded, couldn't get out. And because they couldn't do anything else, the Crusaders decided to dismantle the boats. So they actually took down the masts, they took out all the long, long timbers, and they carried them laboriously up the road from Jaffa to Jerusalem. And the Crusaders, they were able to build two siege towers, which is not a lot, but it's just enough. They were able to build catapults and some of the mantlets, for undermining the walls. And it turned a kind of frustrating blockade into a very serious siege. And at this point, it was critical The Crusaders are on a race against time because if they can't capture Jerusalem quickly, even the Egyptian government will be able to muster its troops and bring a huge relief force, trapping the Crusaders inland and cutting them off from their supplies in the port of Jaffa. It sounds so trivial, but it's actually make or break. The whole Crusader movement could have been stopped in its track. Never happened. But all you need is one siege tower. You you don't need 100. You just need one six feet away from the enemy walls.
0: The northern and southern Frankish Crusaders were competing for entry and honour, but one group soon emerged
2: victorious. The breakthrough in the siege Came when the northern Franks moved their siege tower overnight round to a different position in the walls, one that they felt was more vulnerable. And despite huge resistance on the part of the defenders who were trying to set fire to the tower, who were using catapults to attack it, they managed to get it to within a few feet of the walls. They were kind of scrambling over tree trunks at a height of several stories high, in full armour, under attack. And in any siege, that is the critical moment. Once that single breakthrough takes place, the defenders pretty much know that the game's over. The southern French had been trying to push their siege tower, which was on the south of Jerusalem, up to the walls, but they'd had less success. Now that they knew that a breakthrough had taken place, They took their siege ladders and their guys ran up to the walls and managed to get over the battlements that way. So the whole place effectively comes down like a pack of cards. What happened afterwards has always been quite controversial. The Christian Chronicles made a big deal of of a massacre. Sieges that end without a surrender are very bloodthirsty. And that's true in Europe. It's true in the Middle East. And I think that's one thing to bear in mind, is that what happened to Jerusalem was not necessarily a rush of fanatical religious hatred or racial hatred. It was of a magnitude which was the same when a European city was captured under siege and without surrender. That was the ghastly rules of war. The other thing that's since become known is that the chroniclers were vastly exaggerating. The massacres that were supposed to be total, in fact, weren't that at all.
0: It seems as if the massacre that followed the capture of Jerusalem wasn't as much of an all-out bloodbath as originally suggested. Many members of the Jewish and Christian communities were killed alongside much of the Muslim garrison. However, contrary to what contemporary chroniclers wrote, we do know that many members of the Jewish community were also ransomed after the massacre. I spoke to Suleiman Murad, Myra M. Sampson Professor of Religion at Smith College, to reevaluate the evidence.
3: Largely, the evidence about the massacre in Jerusalem from close contemporary comes from Crusader sources only. We don't have Muslim sources actually that corroborate that there was a massacre. And therefore, is this that some Crusaders? want to tell their fellows back in Europe, look at what we did. So it's part of valorization, part of legitimization, part of heroism. Is this fact, fiction? We have reports that the crusaders, they don't give us numbers, but they tell us that they captured the city. And as they went, they start killing. And they actually, they could get down to their knees in blood. So you see there the exaggeration that here someone is exaggerating in order to communicate a point to someone, to a reader somewhere else. And then the way the event supposedly transcribed that after they occupied the city and killed all the Muslims, they went to the Temple Mount and they found even more Muslims there and they kept on killing. But then they killed everybody and went and asked the Muslims to bury their Muslim For religionists, wait a minute, where did you bring those Muslims to bury other Muslims? So when you start looking at the details, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. Someone is inventing a story about the massacre that they want to use in order to show off. And by the way, Muslim historians from a century after, they became aware of that Christian narrative, crusader narrative, and they adopted it. But they adopted it in order to fuel the Islamic resentment is very utilitarian, extremely powerful. They are repeating it also for specific agendas.
0: Having captured Jerusalem, the Crusaders once again found themselves in a tricky situation. They could celebrate the end to their long-armed pilgrimage within the city, facing possible retaliation all the while. Or they could confront any threat head-on and establish their position as a new player in the
2: region. The capture of Jerusalem was a massive, massively important thing for the Crusaders from a religious perspective. It was the end of the golden rainbow for them. From a political and military perspective, it was much more ambiguous though. If you think about Jerusalem, it's inland, it's got very limited supplies. It's actually a very difficult place to have as a a capital city, certainly for the Crusaders. So The capture of Jerusalem was very much a beginning rather than an end. And there was a battle soon afterwards called the Battle of Ascalon, which was actually arguably the real beginning of the Crusader states. The garrison of Jerusalem was Egyptian, and they'd been waiting for a relief column to come from Egypt to to save them. The Egyptian army had a huge military base in Palestine at a place called Ascalon. It looks as though there were about 20,000 men there by the time that the Crusaders had captured Jerusalem. This was a very professional force. The Crusaders very aggressively decided that they were going to attack the Egyptians before the Egyptians attacked them. And this was... On one level, it was a a strange thing to do. It was certainly bold, because the Egyptian army outnumbered them two or three to one. And the Crusaders were very much at the end of a long supply line, whereas the Egyptian army was operating within the Egyptian empire. Nonetheless, the Crusaders moved down to Ascalon. And bizarrely, they were able to surprise the Egyptians. And it's very hard to see how this happened. But for whatever reason, the Egyptian commanders maybe got word that the Crusaders were approaching, but they didn't understand what they, were, what they were hearing or they didn't believe what they were hearing. And eventually the Crusaders launched a huge charge on the Egyptian army. The Egyptian army was so big that most of it was camped outside of the city and in the middle of a market and around orchards. And the Crusader army, which was smaller than theirs, but it came over them like a tide, Heavy knights rushed into them. The infantry were pushed aside and it ended up as a, a bit of a massacre, really. The Egyptian army ran back for the gates of Ascalon trying to get back inside and a lot of people were suffocated and crushed in the process of doing that. Some of them hid up the trees in the orchards and there's very graphic stories of snipers shooting their guys down from the trees and taking very few prisoners. It was a very, very bloodthirsty battle. And interestingly, it's almost been forgotten about in history but it's militarily much more significant than say the capture of jerusalem because once the battle of ascalon had been won it proved or people felt it proved that the crusaders were there to stay that this wasn't just a a one-off pilgrimage to jerusalem and then going home it gave the sense that european forces could actually survive out there and that having beaten the largest, most regular force in the region, that they really had a future.
0: The Crusaders had not only fulfilled their vow of making a pilgrimage to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they had also secured the Holy City and its surrounding territory under Latin Christian control. And as Natasha Hodgson, Associate Professor of Medieval History at Nottingham Trent University, explained to me, this achievement influenced later Crusading
4: ideas. The capture of Jerusalem is definitely interpreted back in the West as a major success. If you were to expand that view longer term, if I flip it over and say, had the first crusade not captured Jerusalem, would crusading have continued? It's that kind of success, and particularly the capture of the Holy City, which allows the church to then say, well, God wanted this to happen. Therefore, crusading is something we should be doing. Whereas had it all kind of fallen apart, they would have swept it under the carpet and possibly wouldn't have continued with that line
0: of militaristic endeavour. With the crusade seemingly a monumental triumph for the Western Christian forces, perhaps we should think back to Pope Urban II's milestone to crusade way back in 1095. I asked Danielle Park, teaching fellow at the University of Leicester,
5: to unpick what the movement's architect first envisioned. There are big questions still about how much Jerusalem was central in Urban's thinking. It does seem to be a refrain that's picked up very early on in terms of the charter evidence that we have. Crusaders are speaking as they're about to go. They're talking about the idea of Jerusalem. They're talking about the idea of following Christ. But, of course, most of the narrative material that we have was composed and edited in the wake of the capture of Jerusalem so it would have been relatively easy for them to project that backwards and say that had always been the goal. Urban doesn't live to hear the news that Jerusalem has fallen to the Crusaders so we don't know how he would have framed it but it does seem to be something that the papacy quite early on tap into as a success. Looking forward to the second crusade under Pope Eugenius III he establishes that the First Crusaders are this generation's set of heroes that need to be emulated and honoured with subsequent crusading campaigns. So whether it was intended to be or not, it becomes the blueprint for what this kind of campaign that we now call a crusade should look like. And it does establish this sense of a connection between the Near East and the West in the sense that there is now a permanent garrison society located in Jerusalem securing the pilgrim routes making it much easier for future campaigns and for pilgrims to go back and forwards between the holy places and the west. This is something people are keen to tap into they want to emulate it they want to have that sense of connection with it.
0: Compared to the vast numbers that actually set out on crusade only a relatively small percentage decided to stay within the new Latin East and establish what we now call the Crusader States. Both the formation of these states and the outcome of the Crusade
5: had a massive cultural impact. We're used to quite a political orientated map where Europe is often right in the middle of the map and everything else is on the outskirts but from the medieval maps that survive from 1099 onwards and some before you see that it's actually jerusalem that is the center of the world so taking the position of the navel of the world essentially right bang in the middle so it just tells us something about the medieval world view from a christian perspective in terms of where else we might see the legacy of the first crusade the vast numbers of source material that we have in terms of the narrative histories. So that tells us straight away, this is a story that's captured the imagination of Western Europe at this time. We see it in the material culture, in terms of the relics that are brought back, the demand for pieces of the true cross that are circulating in Western Europe. We see it in the use of construction styles, like churches within the style of the Holy Sepulchre becoming increasingly prominent within the West. Jerusalem and the nascent so-called Crusader states, we see that legacy writ quite large as well in the traditions that are established in the wake of the first crusade. So by the time we get to the 1130s, we've got Melisande and her husband, Fulke von Ju, now King of Jerusalem, deciding that now is the right time to renovate the Holy Sepulchre, to make it large enough for the numbers of pilgrims and settlers. So we have records of Fulk and Melisande making these donations, establishing places like the Convent of Bethany in the 1130s, and they're telling us that they're doing it to celebrate and commemorate the achievements of the First Crusaders. They're telling us that they're seeing themselves as the next line of Crusaders, the next generation of Crusader rule. They're commemorating anniversaries like the 50th anniversary of the First Crusaders when the not-quite-yet-fully-finished Holy Sepulchre is inaugurated in a huge ceremony to keep those dates prominent in the minds of the settlers and the rulers. So it is something that has a profound short-term legacy as well as the long-lasting more modern one that it's taken on. Facing overwhelming odds, an
0: incredibly lengthy journey and an environment most crusaders had never experienced before. Why was the first crusade successful? Sheer determination, desperation, and zeal had driven them onwards, and this cohesion had preserved their focus on Jerusalem. But what else?
3: In 1071, the Seljuks came and occupied eastern Anatolia, Syria, and most of Palestine. But that didn't transpire and translate into organised and unified rule. It was translated that every commander took hold of a city or a town and they ruled independently of each other. The main Seljuk Sultan was way back in Iran, way far to exert any force to force them actually to get together and be unified. So that is the main thing, is that the Muslims were not able to cut together and present a unified opposition. Also, you need to take into consideration the fact that there was what we call relative surprise in the sense that the Muslims were not clear about The power of these Europeans, actually the Europeans came with techniques that the Muslims were not very familiar. So they were accustomed to certain styles of fighting. Only when the Muslims analysed it, they realised actually their style of fighting can be used effectively to deplete the energy. Actually, you can on the long term get more advantages, but it took them some time for the Muslims to figure out that.
0: The first crusade was certainly a bolt from the blue. For the populations of Asia Minor and the Levant. And this element of surprise was something later campaigns would not be so fortunate to have. However, as Steve noted, lucky timing wasn't the only reason for their success.
2: It has to be said, the Crusaders had a fair amount of luck on their side. The fact that the Muslim forces were disunited doesn't take away from the magnitude of their success. They were brave, they were well-motivated, they had some very aggressive entrepreneurial generals. And this allowed the campaign to be a military success. It allowed many of the Christian lands of the Middle East to be recovered, and it allowed communications to be re-established between them and Europe to a greater extent. It also created a series of states, which leads to outcomes that are good and bad. On the one hand, the Crusader states did survive for 200 years, and they did provide defence for the Christian communities of the Middle East for that time. On the other hand, they did create a lot of problems, and particularly the, the strange success of the First Crusade created unrealistic expectations. So, for instance, the success of the Battle of Ascalon and the capture of Jerusalem led people to think that even relatively small European forces could hold that region, And in reality, that really wasn't true. The Crusader states were a long way from the heartlands of Europe. They were on the edge of a a vast Islamic empire that I guess people in Europe were only vaguely aware of. It was never a sustainable campaign.
0: While the First Crusade itself succeeded, it was this success that also led to some false lessons being learned and sowed the seeds for future
3: problems. On the Muslim side, there doesn't seem to be a direct religious emotional reaction for the fall of Jerusalem. But gradually, political factors started to be used in order to fuel Muslim resentments against the crusaders by playing on the religious significance, the sentimentalism of Jerusalem as a key religious city for Islam. So we start seeing in the 1120s, 1130s, definitely in the 1140s, this propaganda. In Arabic, it's called fada'il of Jerusalem, which translates about the religious symbolism of Jerusalem. So these are literary narratives. These are traditions that have been transmitted from the 7th century about what makes Jerusalem significant for Muslims. In Jerusalem, the first temple was built by Solomon there, that in Jerusalem, this is where Abraham tried to sacrifice his son. And this is when more Muslims start to become aware that having Jerusalem being occupied is not tolerable. And therefore, you start seeing there how the liberation of Jerusalem now is clipped, is connected to the campaign to engage with the crusaders. In the 1114. in particular, this is when it becomes extremely at the centre of this, what we call, counter-crusade.
0: And as Suleiman explained, this growing counter-crusade also gave new meaning to the idea of jihad.
3: Jihad in the classical Islamic tradition is largely a war against the enemies of Islam. So it is about warfare. Some scholars try to attach to it a personal spiritual component in the sense that you need to be good Muslim before you can do that. You want to encourage the Muslims to come and fight when you need that. But if that becomes so easily deployable and used, then it might actually disrupt normal relations with other empires that you don't want to disrupt. So they were able to convince scholars to move jihad, the ideology, so to speak, to what we call a communal obligation. Only the leader of the Muslims, the caliph, can tell them when and how they should do jihad. In the Crusader period, what happened is that now, the Islamic world is being attacked. They want to reinstate the individual obligation. So they re-centered around, it's a duty of the Muslims to go and fight their enemies so that the enemies cannot attack them. But when they attack them, everybody has to participate. We start seeing that accusations that the Muslims are not doing jihad and their lands are being attacked because they are not good Muslims. Jihad started to be used even in order to label Muslims as good Muslims, bad Muslims, and, and the good Muslims have to fight the bad Muslims. So in a way, it was stripped of those nuances. And that's probably one of the worst things of the Crusades per se, is that it launched this vision about this militant jihad that before that time, the Muslims themselves were trying to marginalize.
0: The Crusaders may have been successful in capturing Jerusalem, but taking the Holy City wasn't their only goal. If we think right back to the start of this series, You might remember that Pope Urban II had received a plea for help from the Byzantine Emperor Alexius I Komnenos. And Alexius had wanted support retaking lost Byzantine territories in Asia Minor. So how far can we say that the First Crusade was a success for him? Over to our resident expert, Jonathan Harris, Professor of the History of Byzantium at Royal Holloway, University of London.
4: On one level, the First Crusade was an absolutely extraordinary success for the Byzantines. The idea was we'll go to the Christians in the West, invite some of them over, they came, they went into Asia Minor, they bashed the Turks at the Battle of Dorylaeum. we then follow along and we've reconquered the whole of Western Asia Minor, which is one of the richest parts of it. So we're now enjoying the agricultural produce and the tax revenue from that area. Um, We've got rid of those Turkish emirs who were using the port of Smyrna to make piratical attacks on our shipping. Yeah, what is not to love, one way or another? And I think you could say the whole thing was a success and one that was achieved with very little loss of Byzantine life. It was the Crusaders who bore the brunt of that, and cheap at the price. It's when we get into the long term and the legacy that the downside of the First Crusade starts to appear. It does leave some problems and one of them is a perception in the West that the Byzantines are somehow lukewarm about the Crusades. Other Christians get on their horses, don their armour, go out, fight the infidel, conquer Jerusalem. But what do the Byzantines do? When they're asked to come, they're evasive. They don't turn up. Luckily, God intervened on our side and we won the battle. But where was the emperor? So this perception of the Byzantines, sometimes as lukewarm about the Crusades, but even as kind of opponents of it are going to cause a kind of rift to open up between Byzantium and the West. And this is going to get worse as time goes on, because Alexius VI's successors are not happy to let things lie as far as Antioch is concerned. And on several occasions, they go down with their armies to force the Prince of Antioch to recognise their suzerainty. And this is seen basically as a bit of a stab in the back by Western Christians, because here we are trying to maintain a Christian presence in the east against these many Muslim neighbours. What does the Byzantine Emperor do? Does he help us? No, he comes down and tries to beat up the poor old Prince of Antioch. Good Catholic boy. What a terrible thing to do. So it's this perception which is going to get worse because the Byzantines, who, as we've already seen, are very flexible in their policy. They'll speak to anybody if it will help them to preserve their state. So they'll employ Turkish warriors in their army. They will also make treaties with Muslim powers. And it's going to fuel this perception of the Byzantines as being opponents even of the Crusades and not real Christians.
0: Add this to the growing schism between Eastern and Western Christianity caused by the installation of new Latin patriarchs in places such as Antioch. And you can start to see that the Crusade laid the foundation for several challenging relationships. And it's this mixed legacy surrounding the Crusades that continues to challenge us today.
3: Whether you are talking about Europe or the Islamic world, the way that you are engaging with the Crusades is you want to mirror your time and project it back. You start using the Crusades, ripping it of all of subtleties and complexities, and using it as what you call a clash, right? Because you want to project your own clashes. This is the problematic legacy of the Crusades. There is so much focus on warfare, even though we brag about being people who love peace and diversity and coexistence, but we also adore wars. And therefore, you are going to go back or be drawn to those chapters in history that were about war. The environments in which we live shapes not only our tendencies to look at the past and examine but also shapes the way we ask questions and what questions we ask. If we were to read it and study it in and of itself, actually we realize we are looking at an incredibly complex phenomena, complex world that we cannot reduce into clash of continents, civilizations, religions. We cannot say that religion was not an element. It was. But At the same time that these people at some point were fighting each other, those people were looking at religion as a way to bring them together.
1: We get a sense of how different it must have felt to settle in the Holy Land for those early Crusaders. When people come over from the West in say 1100, 1101, the people who have remained in Jerusalem greet them. They say, what's happening at home? What's happening with our families at home? that's where their mental mindset is still facing it. They don't think of themselves as being inhabitants of the Holy Land. You jump forward 20 years and they're talking themselves as we who were once Westerners are now Easterners. They've settled. A generation has bedded down.
0: With the capture of Jerusalem in 1099, we come to the end of our tale. But the end of our story is only the start of a whole other fascinating history many thanks to my experts for today's episode and throughout this series professor jonathan phillips dr steve tibble professor Suleiman murad dr danielle park dr natasha hodgson and professor jonathan harris thanks for listening this episode was produced by daniel kramer arden additional checks by daniel Adamson.